it's a belief. It's a really big thing. Um, confidence, belief, just um, belief in that. Um, not that your work is necessarily good, but that your work deserves to be read by others. Hi, this is Jesse. Hi, this is Helen. And we're Asian bitches down under. I believe we have spoken about this topic before, the topic of trans- literary translations. Yes. Um, Helen's currently in her car. Yeah, uh, reading. We'll talk about something about cars a bit later. Just some trashy talk, but I'm recording from my okay. car. Yeah. Um, reading vi- violent phenomena. Phenomena. Yeah, yes. which is yeah. the the best collection of essays about literary translations um, by POC peeps, literary translators that um, you could possibly get your hands on today. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, it's and, a rare read for everyone. I don't, I don't think it's like a mainstream reading. Um, not a lot of people who will be interested, but um, we strongly encourage our listeners if you get. Can, I feel like, um, yeah, I feel like um, in the last couple of years, this whole rhetoric of decolonization has become more mainstream, mm. and as a result, people are actually reading more fiction and works in translation because people are realising that there are limits to um, their knowledge, I guess, mm-hmm. um, if, if you're only like mono, monolingual. And um, I, th- I feel like as a consequence of, you know, more historically marginalised people coming to the forefront and being, a, a, being allowed to step into these spaces that were predominantly, you know, um, occupied by white people, Mm-hmm. Um, we have heard, been able to hear the voices of those um, that we haven't heard from before and um, their perspectives, which is really why I love this anthology, um, which is, of course, um, released through our, our Tilted Access, which is a, um, a publishing company started by the woman who won. Uh, she, was a tr- he, she was a translator. She no longer actually practices translating now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Deborah, Deborah Smith, of course, who is the woman who won um, the Booker for Han Khan's translation in 2016, I believe. Yeah, um, the vegetarians, yes, of course. And, um, and I, I really love this book because um, it, is, it, it is a gem in terms of what uh, ideas come through in each of the essays. My favourite, obviously, being the one by Anton Herr, who I absolutely just think is one of the most important voices in 2023. Mm -hmm. Um, I cannot stress that enough. When it just comes to important voices, when it just comes to literary representation, about decolonisation, about um, white supremacy, about the publishing industry today, just he has the most, like he's on the right page in history, I think. He's someone I would turn to gladly for any any kind of cultural or political sort of um, viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he's kind of the only person I really top onto Twitter um, to, to like, I, I don't linger on Twitter at all. I just think it's a cesspool of absolute, like, nastiness. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but Anton is the only person I really pay attention to and uh, is worth visiting the cesspool of nastiness. Um, <clears throat> and we were lucky this week um, and very glad that he gave us a little bit of a shout-out. So thanks, Anton, for that yes. on Instagram. Yeah. So I love how Anton, he has the courage or speak out the things that perhaps we have in our mind for decades but we just 
didn't think whether or not we have the rights again. You know, that's kind of like internalized racism for ourselves again. Um, we have the right to talk about it because always, as a person of color, we always are worry or scared of the repercussions that we get of what whatever things that we speak out publicly. So, and yeah, great job of you know pointing out the faults in the colonized world and. Yeah, and before we start recording, we were just briefly talking about the importance of, again, you know, from past two weeks that we mentioned this, the importance of how that people of color needs to be involved in the translation world, especially translating into English because, um, you know, English is it is a universal language. You cannot consider that is a language is owned by just white people anymore because we mm. have people of color growing up born into that language and they know and they are intimately you know traveling between either their so-called heritage heritage language you know their mother tongue and also where they uh, recite the language that they speak uh, every day you know lang english language and i think the importance of ex um what we were talking about how to access the language, you know, yeah. how, how mm -hmm. readers perceive a specific piece of text is very important and how to translate I think that's one thing that Anton pointed out is that translator is the first person who is the reader, you know, translator is the reader yeah. of the text as well. Yeah. So how a translator you know, translate that piece of text into English, it is influence of how that, how that person is grew up or how that person is interacted with a certain language. So how I translate will be most likely very different to how a white person translates because I have read translator work by white translators and I just don't feel like there's a, you know, there's a vibe that I want to get out of them and then you if you look into a person of colors translation and you get a very different feel out of it um speaking of um see I, I can't for some reason i just can't read i have read uh works by what's his name murakame um my favorite mm. one of my favorite japanese writer not anymore uh murakame's work both in chinese and english and I know that all of his English translation was done by white people, and I just don't get the same feeling out of reading in China in you know mm. English. It's just so different. And um, in what way is it different? Um, sometimes I just don't feel like the story floats that well, or maybe like it's very hard to explain because you know again Chinese is my mother tongue, and I have. I have a lot more close, intimate relationship to it, I think. Like I get mm. more out of it. I can understand a lot more expressive terms in Chinese compared to English. And I just feel like it's just that that certain emotional attachment to Chinese. That, yeah, you know, definitely. I, I feel more intimate to it. Yeah. Well, my um, English is my third language. My first language was actually Taiwanese mm -hmm. and then Mandarin and then Chinese and then English. Mm -hmm. And um, I, um, I know that whenever I hear Taiyi, yeah. when I hear Taiwanese, um, there is a very primal and very um, 
strong connection I have, right. a feeling of yeah. being at home mm -hmm. with my body and with that um, with that certain language that sits in my body in a in a way that neither Chinese nor English does. Mm -hmm. That's why sometimes I just listen to Taiwanese um, podcasts because it feels so comforting. Yeah, it's like it's like your home. You know, it's the yeah, exactly. Yeah, closest um, elements for you that connects you back to your childhood as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's it's it's personal, personal, political. Exactly. You know, language and literary translation. This whole field is is having a big reckoning. I think. I think in the last few years and in the next few years, we'll see a lot of this space being. Um, rumbled up i guess so to speak mm -hmm. a lot of people will be yeah. talking about these issues um <clears throat> and i wanted to say just returning to the collection of essays violet phenomenon violent phenomenon um i i really just appreciated um how straightforward and um uncomplicated anton's essay was and i believe even in the essay he says something like um i'm not sure if i heard him say this somewhere else or if he actually says it in the essay he was like I'm not sure if I'm writing differently to the other essayists, but here is my story kind of thing. Like he mm -hmm. had a, he felt that he might have not had the same tenor, I guess, approaching this issue of um, what they were asked to all write about. But, um, but I really appreciated just his um, uh, very uh, direct way of addressing what he think are the issues, um, the problematic issues facing marginalized a minority literary translators in today's publishing world. Mm -hmm. yeah, Let's move on to something else. Um, yeah, I mentioned at the beginning of our recording that I want to trash talk about something that happened to me this week. <laughs> it's just so stupid. I swear, I get horrible incidents happen to me with cars. Oh my um, God, okay. So this this is not exactly an accident, but I had a panic attack yesterday afternoon while I was dropping off my child to a gymnastic school holiday session. Mm -hmm. So I was reversing into a car park spot, and while my gear was on reversing, you know, you re slowly re release the brake. And yeah, yeah. Back. And then when I press my brake, and my this is kind of a trick that my brain did. My uh -huh. sights were looking at the car next to me, and I previously assumed that there were no one in the car. It was a stationary car that was not moving, was parked right next to the spot that I was parking. But then when I pressed the brake, I saw the car moving forward, but my brain was telling me that my, my car was moving backwards. So right, right. I panicked. Yeah, panic and I pressed the, my brake a couple of times, and because my uh, my eyes was focusing on the car next to me, I couldn't. Mm. See there was anyone inside the car or drive or any driver in the car, and the car was moving forward. So my brain was assuming myself that my car was moving back, and I pressed the brake a couple of times that it didn't. I assumed it didn't work. So in reality, that my car really stopped but the other car was moving forward leaving the car spot the car park spot mm. and during that two seconds my daughter was asking me something and i was distracted and i suddenly panicked it was just like split second that i thought my brake was gone 
not working. It was not working. Yeah. It right. Was right. The scariest moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I was like trying to. I pressed a couple of times, and finally I put my gear onto parking. And I look at the on my left again. I realized that car was moving out of spot. So it was such. I. I it's so hard to explain that kind of sudden panic attack. My heart was just beating so fast. Ten minutes afterwards, that I realized my mind was just playing a trick on me. And I, I finally parked the car, and I realized I didn't park it properly. And I wait for the other car to completely left. And I look around my surroundings, and I park my car properly again. But it was just so scary that I thought that my brake was just gone. Yeah. Right. Because I never had good. I, I always had bad luck with cars. You know, the, the past few years. My car broke down. My old car broke down on a highway. Yeah, you and cars. Radio died. Not a good relationship. Died. Yeah, not a very good relationship with my car. And you know,、um, I had several times that I need to change tires.、Um, I had flat flat tire. My tire has been slashed in. The is it? Is、center. it really? Jeez. Yeah. yeah Who slashed it? I don't know. Just it, it it's it was hooligans. Like、yeah, weirdos that you know that goes around the car park. It was. Um, I think it that day it happened to a couple of the car owners because I saw、uh, like a online discussion in our local community forum saying that I'll、oh, be aware of you know your car being your your tires being slashed because there's some crazy kids going around doing that. Yeah, one time that was so. This is such a funny story. I don't know if I told you before. I accidentally opened someone else's car door. Yeah, you did. You have told me that, yeah, yeah. When you're so distracted and so tired and exhausted, you mistaken someone else's car as your car. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have also done that. I have never, but also、yeah. we don't have a lot of Fiats around. You will assume that the car is locked, but then for some coincidence that the driver was sitting. It was at well. I think a lot of people、park. don't lock their cars. Yeah, I do. Like obsessively. Yeah, the driver was still in the car. It was another mother, so he was at the school car park, and she was sitting on the、um, driver's seat, doing her work on a laptop.、Um, after she dropped off her kid, and I accidentally opened the car because it looks so much. It's almost the same. It was just another brand of the yeah the,、um, station wagon. So I opened the door and I. It's that split second that you know you made one of the biggest mistakes in your life. You try to avoid. It's just、that. a little boo boo. I'm sure it's a funny boo boo that she was laughing about as well. Yeah.、Oh, the life. Well, the I wanted to talk about a book um、uh, um that everyone's talking about, but I thought that I might、mm-hmm. hold my discussion until you have read it. And、oh, I'm obviously、okay. talking about R H or、uh, Rebecca Kwan's book Yellow Face, which is. Yes. Just everywhere, and everyone's talking about it. So I thought this discussion might be more pertinent and、uh, appropriate if we waited for you to read it as well. Okay, yeah. So, that's because、good. that's the book that I, I guess, it was the cultural consumption that I had wanted to talk about this week.、Um, I had to review it for the Herald, and、uh, it, I guess、um, we will wait until your, you know, when you read it before we talk、mm. about it. But very quickly,、um, my own personal opinion is that it's fantastic. Oh, okay. It's brilliant, and I actually finished it. Unlike Babel,、um, Babel is.、Um, I think Babel's、uh, book. 
it's her other uh, so this is her fifth book but it's her first book that is not genre so she has written four previous books in like fantasy sci-fi mm -hmm. genre i think she started publishing when she was 19 so she's really one of those very um precocious and i guess confident like somehow i i honestly think the older i get the more i um i really believe that um creating art uh, 90, 90% of it is just confidence, honestly. And the people who do get stuff out, um, who, when they're younger, they're just people who are really, um, unapologetic and confident that their work deserves to be read by other people. Mm -hmm. And if I had that confidence when I was 19, um, I'm sure I would have, you would be, published you know, by published by then. Not, 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 not saying that I think my work is great at 19. I just think, um, um like i uh, like a lot of it comes down to um your willingness to just think um to just believe or your dogged belief it's a belief it's a really big thing um confidence belief just um belief in that um not that your work is necessarily good but that your work deserves to be read by others mm. um and recently i've been re doing a lot of reading about uh, filmmakers, auteurs from the 90s, um, because I'm researching for my next book. And I have come across just all these, like, these, you know, independent cinema was huge in the 90s. There's Jim Jarmusch, uh, David Lynch, uh, Wang, Wayne Wang, uh, uh, Tarantino, uh, you know, all these guys. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they, um, who else? Paul Thomas Anderson, all these men. Uh, started making films, you know, when they were in their teens, they didn't have anyone to say, hey, you're doing a great job. They just did it because they uh, they thought, um, I want to I wanna make something and I think that, you know, it's something that other people should, you know, I think it's good enough that other people can also watch it. You know, it's um, so much of creativity is just, on. I, I would love to say it's 100% confidence, Mm -hmm. and in a way it is um but uh i think to be successful you do need a bit of um i wouldn't say talent i really hate that word talent i feel like that mm -hmm. word means nothing these days if when you call someone talented um for but me it has absolutely talent. exactly exactly what, what does talent even there? mean you know yeah, what is talent someone for exactly one, yeah um, it's very subjective of what you consume like a median a film or a book and then maybe one will consider that yeah it's it's great but another person will be on the different end of the spectrum say that I, oh, yeah no, it's not my taste I, I hate it you know well yeah yeah exactly i just i don't really understand what the word talent means these days in 2023 you know when there are so many different types of skills mm -hmm. uh, skills yes. that are um commercial and uh cap capitalistic in the sense that it can bring you money like um you know um these days people are growing up to want to be tiktoks you know stars and things like that do we call those people talented you know it just really depends on the skills that you value i think um and to what degree you consider what you know what the sub what subjects um you consider talent to encompass but anyway um i think that um i forget my original point but um but uh of being well as a creativity well i just wanted to say yellow face is tremendous it really is a fantastic book 
and I would love, can't wait for you to read it because then we can talk about it because it's mm. honestly, she she is just incredible. Mm. I, I really love the book. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, I look forward to read it. Yeah, speaking of um, the creators in art and literature, you remind me of one of the podcasts that I listened to. It's a it's a program that was recorded back in 2010. Um, I w- while I was doing my homework for this specific Taiwanese author that I'll be meeting in two weeks' time. So his name's Giddens Ke. Yeah, I want to pronounce his Chinese name correctly because all the English... He, his surname's translated to K-O, which most people will presume to pronounce it Ko or Guo. Yeah, Ko. Especially Ko. Yeah, Ko. Yeah, Ko Jinten, and as known as those Night Knives, Zhou uh, Dao. He's an author that has published like 60 plus books. And back in 2010, he said that uh, when he when was asked that where he got the inspiration of writing so many novels, and he just said that, oh, I just enjoy writing novels. He just said that I enjoy creating stories. Um, I'm just lucky that people and the publishing industry picked up my work and got it published and I made money out of it. Mm. Yeah, he said that for those who want to do creative work in exchange for uh, material goods, those will never achieve. You have to have a drive that you naturally want to want to do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, not for any sake, just for yourself. I think he said something like along the line that just I just like to do it. That's it. There's no other reason. I just like to create stories. Yeah, to write strange stuffs and there's nothing else to interpret from there and i think he emphasized quite a lot about it just happens that people enjoying my work and he doesn't feel i don't think that he ever mentioned about talent or skills or things like that um but i thought that was pretty well said that it also helps people out there to look into themselves and consider that if I have a story or if I have a creative idea, um, I don't have to worry whether or not other, I don't have to get an approval from anyone else. I just need to create as long as I want to do it. Yeah, yeah a lot of these um, things you're talking about come up in Yellow Face mm-hmm. about uh, who, who gets, who, who the publishing world decides has talent and who is ignored. Mm, mm. and pushed to the sidelines and sh- shrunk into oblivion, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an incredible look into uh, the publishing industry and I found it incredibly, incredibly relatable. I know I, that is such an awful industry. word to use <laughs> and, and, you know, like um, whatever, but it, the, the, the characters that she paints in them, I have met every single one of them. Mm-hmm. The people she you has described in the publishing industry and yeah. the people who she comes across, it is absolutely spot on. It is excruciatingly spot on. I was like, Jesus Christ, this is so incredibly spot on. It, just just for the sheer not. fact God, of... This, that's, that's Amanda <laughs> from this... Simple. Yeah. Oh, yeah, just company. from the sheer fact <laughs> of the characters she creates. She basically has picked 
real life characters, I'm sure, mm. real people, and then put them on the page. Yeah, I'm pretty、It's、sure、incredible. she experienced a lot herself. Yeah, I'm sure she has. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hi there. If you're new to our show, thanks for tuning in into our program, and we hope you will stay with us for a very long time. And if you're a regular listener, we're forever grateful for your continuous support throughout this period of uncertainty. It has really helped this podcast to gain a great exposure, as our mission is to center the perspectives of people who look like us, who are marginalized historically, to the sideline of conversation. So, if you haven't already, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast on Omni, Apple, Google, or Spotify, and leave a rating and review. And of course, as a small podcast program, we rely on listeners' support to continue this work. Please do check out our Buy Me Coffee page and make a donation in order for us to continue to advocate the intersectionality in the podcast industry. Okay,、um, so I want to mention my cultural consumption this week, which I should have mentioned a couple of weeks ago.、Um, it's an animation film again, not your type. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Actually, this week I have seen one, so I will talk about that. Oh, as、well. okay, interesting. Okay, so I want to share、um, the my experience of watching the animation film called Spider Verse、uh, across the universe. This is actually a sequel to the Spider Verse. Back in twenty、um, eighteen, it was rather underrated animation film、uh, called Spider Man into the Spider Verse, featuring Marvel superhero, your friendly neighborhood Spider Man. So it's a surprisingly well done animation, followed in the、uh, protagonist Miles Morales, an an African American fourteen year old kid who was bitten by a radioactive spider from another universe and turned into a Spider Man. So it's like a very different、uh, direction compared to the previous Spider-Man series that we've watched.、Uh, you know, our lives from what was the Tobey Maguire. Our generation will be Tobey Maguire, Andy Andrew Garfield, Garfield, and then Tom Holland. Tom Holland. Those three major Spider-Man、um, actors in the past twenty years or so. So this animation follows Miles Morales,、uh, who turns into a Spider-Man、uh, after the run-in with the original Spider-Man of his universe, who had died saving him. So he's like a like a replacement. But when I saw that, that I feel like that's kind of like a white savior, you know, trope again. But because of the crisscross of the universe, he encountered other Spider-Man, Spider-Woman, Spider other species. All very、uh, different spider superheroes from another universe. So they combine their powers to defeat the villain who is trying to cause、uh, damage in multiple universe. And the sequel that we went to watch about two weeks ago、um, follows Miles into his final year of high school,、uh, with him missing his old、uh, spider friends from another universes. Um, the story I feel like is rather convoluted when it comes to multiple universe, and it seems like it's becoming like a trend for the last three years or so.、Um, writing the narratives across different universes, and 
But with this animation, animation, the central element of being taking control of your own life, there are a lot of conspicuous uh, conspicuous um, representation of different cultures in the second film. The fact that there's actually an Indian Spider-Man, <laughs> it was just really uh, yeah. The nuances of like ethnic family values. Um, the depiction of mother's love and the concern of a child. Uh, it look it takes angles from different characters rather than just the Spider Man himself. And also, I found the I I can tell that the script and the production involve a lot of people of color because there are scenes that is generally that I know a white producer would not be able to produce. Um, mm. For example, there was a scene about where Miles he goes into a meeting with you know there's career advisors at high schools where yeah. they talk about what what college you can apply to or they will talk to your parents about uh, how good is your grade which subject that you you have your strengths and mm-hmm. kind of like advice what kind of uh, degree you can apply to and when they were looking at the report this. Uh, I assume she's why this white career advisor kind of winks at the parents. The mom's the mom's uh, South American, so she's uh, I think she was Puerto Rican, yeah, and the dad's African American. So she winks at the parents, saying that, um, "Oh, okay, maybe you're kind of um, falling behind in something, but you know you're kind of disadvantaged. You know you're from immigrant immigrant background." He's trying to like insinuate that maybe they can apply for some of the benefit because they're people of color yeah right skin color and the mom's like the mom's like saying that we're not disadvantaged you know <laughs> i'm a nurse and you know the yeah. dad works in the police office why were we disadvantaged yeah, yeah. so I, I thought that was like making a very satirical poke, poke uh, of how white society treats um people of color yeah yeah definitely so that i thought that oh this is it, such a great little scene that that insert into the whole film yeah so spider-verse i generally encourage a lot of people to go and see it because it's uh spider-man of course again it's a, it's a superhero film but it's um you're seeing it from the perspective of a person of color yeah okay so that's, that's great fun. yeah what about you um, so I um, I had the privilege of meeting up with S.L. Lim last week, mm-hmm. um, one of the greatest writers and people working in Australia, um, hands down, and uh, they recommended, I told them about, you know, my next project about filmmakers, mm-hmm. about movies, and they recommended I watch uh, Tashi Khan's Millennium Actress. Uh, have you heard that film? Helen. Oh Tashi Khan. Shatashi Khan is, is a very anime? famous director. Um, it's anime, I guess. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the film Millennium Actress was released in 20, 2001, 2001, 2001. Okay. Yeah, 2001. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's basically um, a story of, of it blends cinema reality. Uh, and flashbacks, uh, basically telling the story of two documentary makers who have gone to the house of a of a legendary actress, and mm-hmm. she's now retired, and she tells them her life story. 
Mm-hmm. And it is incredibly, incredibly sad. It is just one of the most harrowing, harrowingly sad and yet beautiful films I've ever seen. Uh, and completely, completely something that I found myself um, relating to, as in the central character and her yearning for this. Um, basically, it talks about her meeting a sort of wayward guy, a sort of nomad, uh, a political dissident <clears throat> in um, the Sino-Japanese War, mm-hmm. Sino, and uh, and just about the rest of her life being act- being an actor, uh, being um, being put into several different roles, but all the while chasing this guy, um, always having this fantasy of where this guy went. Um, it is one of the most Im- amazing, incredible stories I've ever sat down to witness, and I just cannot recommend it enough. And I'm so glad that my friend S.L. Lim recommended it to me, and I'm so glad that I sat down and gave it a chance because I'm not someone who likes to take on people's recommendations Mm-hmm. Um, purely due to the fact that in historically it hasn't worked out. I've listened to a lot of people recommend stuff that, which I've ended up completely not gelling with at all. But <laughs> but I'm glad that SLM knew my tastes mm-hmm. and knew that I would like this. Mm-hmm. I so absolutely it's adore it. Adult animation, isn't it? It is incredibly, incredibly. incredibly. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure that uh, children can watch it too, but they, yeah. I don't think they will uh, register the emotional weight uh-huh. of what the film is trying to do. Yeah, yeah. I think Japanese, they create a lot of animation for specifically adults rather than children. They're not really targeting children, I feel like. Um, because only if you lived through that experience that yeah. you will feel the it will you it will be more relatable to you. Yeah, I keep um you know telling you guys that Princess Kaguya, it's by Studio Ghibli as well, but it's such mm-hmm. an underrated animation just because of the style is a lot more simpler than the other. Um, animation films, but Princess Kaguya, it's going to be one of those films that is the same, probably surpass Inside Out for me because it's just portraying all the life of a woman and it's just a heartbreaking final scene where she, <laughs> don't want to swear for you, but. Okay, I'm going to watch yeah. it. I'm going to watch it. Kaguya because, and the music, oh my God, the music. Even if I, I think I've said it before on our podcast, if I listen to the procession of celestial being, that's the sound, that's the name of the last piece of music that plays in the final two minutes in the animation, animation, I listen to the first bar and I will not stop crying. Yeah, yeah. Because it's I know. so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking, yeah. the last thing. I know what you mean. I, I have those feelings as well. Helen was, so our other sister, this week I uh, went to see Elemental with her friends. Uh, sorry, with her children, not her friends. <laughs> what friends? Yeah, Just I'm kidding, she does have friends. Film this week, yeah. Yeah, um, and it, it apparently tanked. The Elemental, Pixar's Elemental, apparently hasn't done very well. 
um, yeah, hasn't had good reviews. Have, like very opposite response. Like, yeah, just like in just like a lot of uh, things made by Asian Americans. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. But um, but uh, yeah, she said that she cried a lot in the mm-hmm. film. So you know, yeah. we were text text exchanging movies that made us cry, and um, the the movie that tops it for me is Coco, hands down. Why do you think Coco is the top one for you? Is oh, it's just that moment one? because there's yeah, that moment grandmother. at the end when he sings that song with the grandmother. Mm. I fucking lose it. Music is, hor- so hor- music is so important. Music is so important. I turn into like this ghastly. Um, my my whole yeah. I just I can't even. I just collapse into a ball <laughs> of nothingness. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, we're looking forward to watching Elemental sometime soon i can't wait to watch it and see for myself Mm -hmm. yeah um do you have anything to mention this week um uh, i think uh uh, what i look forward to most is elemental um Mm or we went to see the latest i guess i should mention um indiana jones it was fine Uh it was fine it was just weird watching phoebe waller bridges in such a huge franchise historically nostalgic movie for me because mm-hmm. I kept expecting her to just turn to the camera and, you know, do her thing from Fleabag. Fleabag. But she was fine. She was fine. It was a great movie. Um, I believe we also watched something else. Oh, um, I also want to give a shout-out um, because I am doing a Wang Wang, Wayne Wang uh, retrospective by myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. And I started off with his 1982 film, Noir, Chang is Missing. And I just wanted to tell listeners, if you have time, um, uh, you know, sign up to Criterion Channel and um, watch his films because they Kane is Missing is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen and I can't believe that I had never heard of it. It is just the most important, one of the most important films to come out of America. Uh, it just happens to be made by an Asian American uh, and I can't, I'm just, I'm so ashamed and shocked that I had never seen it before. It is incredibly mm-hmm. good and, and also as a first film i i can't believe it it is it is just i can't i can mm-hmm. i can't speak enough praise to how wonderful the movie is it's called chang is missing chang and um if you can get okay. if you can get criterion somehow um it's on there guys so he's the guy who directed um made in manhattan he also directed last holiday starring Queen Latifah, I believe, a few years ago. Um, so he he's done a bit of Hollywood stuff. Um, obviously, he's he did Joy Luck Club. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think he did Joy Luck Club. Yeah. Um, but my next film for his is Dim Sum, a bit a little bit of heart. So I'll be watching that soon as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know anything about him. About I never, I've never come across that name him. either. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where I'm so ashamed that I don't know these yeah, important people. And then... You know, his parents are from Sandong. So that means we could be related. Because <laughs> our, gra- well, our, um, our, Helen and I, our grandfather, yeah, yeah, was from Sandong. So, you know, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Sandong is a small country village, right? No, it's not anymore. But maybe it's not. Again. Yeah. When I, when I say small village, people are like, "Oh, a hundred people." And when we're talking about small village in China, guys, I mean like, like a million, million people. people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
But this is the thing that you consider that he's seventy-four. If you if you compare him to other seventy-four-year-old white directors, they will probably have like dozens or hundreds of movies up on their sleeves. But I wonder is it because he's you know Asian background that he didn't get? Well, it's Hollywood. Hollywood's white. Yeah, Hollywood is white and misogynist. He has been nominated for BAFTA. Oh, okay, means, yeah, yeah. You know, he he is. I, I know you don't. Oh, like he's incredibly. I, I think in the good. film. I think in the film industry, he's incredibly respected. I just think in the mainstream media, he doesn't have that cult following that yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson has, and David Finch, David Fincher, all those Quentin Tarantino, all those you know auteurs from the nineties. Those are the guys who have you know. Um, been elevated to cult status, but Wang Wang has not. Um, maybe, maybe it's yeah because he's Asian, um, and uh, you know racism guys. In Wikipedia, that he he had directed Maids in Manhattan. Yeah, and last I just holiday. said that. Yeah, I just said that, Helen. <laughs> oh, did you? Sorry, I missed. You. That's okay. Yeah, you were you were looking at. I was looking up Wiki yeah. while I was talking. That's okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, and then um, finally I'm doing a retrospective on Wong Kai Wai with my friends Billy and Kyle. So uh, last week we started off with um, his first film, As Tears Go By. Uh, I believe that was 1988. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's fucking violent, man. It is so horrifyingly violent. It's a beautiful film. Um, Maggie Chung, Andy Lau, Liu De Hua, uh-huh. you know. Um, yeah. We grew up watching Liu De Hua movies a lot. Yep. He's very handsome. Um, Maggie Chung has such a doll-like face. Yeah, I didn't know that it was going to be so violent. So just a warning, if you are, you know, about to watch Wong Kar Wai's first film, just a warning to you guys, it's fucking violent. I think and I, I don't like earlier. violence, so I I looked away for most of the film. Yeah, a lot of earlier Hong Kong films are pretty... They're so violent. violent. They're pretty uh, cent- centralised on the genres of gangsters and mobs yeah exactly yeah that, yeah that period triads so turbulent in the society yeah yeah but um do you know what which film that you're gonna watch next yeah it's called um wildflowers or something oh, okay. something wildflowers or wild days or something that's yeah, his next you, film i should watch uh Chongqing express oh yeah that's gonna come up i think that's the yeah. fourth or fifth film of his let's go uh, Wang Fei, Fei Wang, and also my and also Helen Tu's <laughs> crush of so <laughs> many decades. Yeah, yeah, that's a very. I think I'll watch it again now. I think it'll be different. Yeah, to yeah. I think Wong Kar Wai has definitely been elevated to um, Western stardom in a way that Wang Wang has not. Wong Kar Wai um, mm-hmm. is a like is he's one of so, so many Western guys love him, uh, especially mm-hmm. in the mood for love. One of his films. Um, I believe from 2000 or 2001. Um, yeah, it's often on the top of like people's top 10 lists. Yeah, I found that. Very I've never funny. seen it before, so I'm looking yeah. forward to it. I Have you seen it before? Oh, yeah, Helen, you said you before. fell asleep. I fell asleep because it was just so slow. <laughs> because I watched it when I was like maybe 20 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I wasn't mature enough to understand the slow pacing yeah that's fine how the relationship develops mm, mm. yeah but um 
Yeah. Okay. Wang Kaiwei. Yeah. It's something. I think he's still. Is he still producing? He's still producing something, but I don't see anything. I don't know. Anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Anyway. So that's all for this week. Yeah. Before we go, I want to do a quick mention. Uh, thank you to Feed Spots. Uh, it's an analytical content company which has our podcast program Asian Bitches Down Under featured as in their list of the top. Or twenty best inter intersection of feminist podcast program, so I'll have a uh, link in our show note to share the rest of the other intersectional feminist podcasts that you can listen to, and they're all very amazing, including Rebel Girls Book Club, which my one of that's one of my daughter's um, favorite podcast program. Yeah, so shout to Feet Spot. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Um, so that's the end of our episode. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Google, and Apple, and give us a five star rating. If you'd like to support what we do here at Asian Bitches Down Under, head to Buy Me Coffee page to make a donation for us to continue the intersectionality in the podcast industry. So that's it from us this week, and we'll chat to you next time. Bye.